You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Welcome, you guys. This is your first time or first couple times. We're so glad that you would uh, spend your Sunday morning worshiping and fellowshipping with us. Um, What we like to do is just get right into it after announcements, get into the Word of God. And so if you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32. We're going to be reading the whole chapter this morning. Uh, It's going to be our text As always, if you do not have a Bible, you can pick one up on the table as you walk in, use it for the day, or if you do not have a Bible, it's our gift to you, and uh, you can go ahead and uh, read it and take it home if you need to. But if you've been with us, you know that we've been making our way through the book of Exodus for the last five months or so. We've been just going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through it. We're getting near the end, chapter 32. We're almost there. But it's been a pretty epic journey, right, into this historical account of the formation of the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel. And we've seen really very detailed accounts of how God interacts with his people and what it's done for us. If you've been with us, if you've been with us here or listened to the podcast, or hopefully if you've read the book of Exodus on your own, what you will see is that it shows us the character of God, God's heart and his attributes for his people. It gives us a glimpse into, it shows us in a very tangible way, God's heart for humanity. Specifically, Yahweh, right, the creator God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how he interacts with his chosen people, the nation of Israel. And so today... We kind of pick up that story in Exodus 32. And at this time, Moses is up on the mountaintop. He's up on Mount Sinai. He's meeting with God, and he's receiving instructions. He's receiving the law and the Ten Commandments. And really, he's receiving instructions of how this this new people group, this new nation that are gathered down at the bottom of the mountain, are are how they're supposed to live. How they're supposed to live into this new identity as the people of God. Everything from how they're to interact with God, how they're to interact with other people, how they're to live in the midst of really everyone else at the time that is worshiping other gods and pagan nations. And uh, they, for the very first time, this little family, a couple hundred years ago, has now turned into a nation. And so this is the birth of a nation with their God. And so Moses is on the mountaintop learning from God, receiving from God what it looks like for them to be the people of God. And so um, we're going to be reading and studying the whole chapter of thir- chapter 32 this morning. So let's go ahead and read it and then pray and get into it. Exodus 32, starting at verse 1. <clears throat> When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool when they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They had bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. 
I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be an inheritance forever." Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Verse 15. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is a sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory, it is not the sound of defeat, it is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them into pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire and he ground it into powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, why did these people, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up from Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Aaron, just ridiculous. <laughs> ridiculous. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so became a laughingstock to their enemies. Verse 26. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him and he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today for you were against your own sons and daughters and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Then uh, the Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a play because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time that we get to hear from you. And God, we ask that you would do that. You would speak to us. You would reveal to us what it is in your word that you're trying to teach Israel and what we now here can get out of this. How does this apply to us? What does this speak into our own human condition? Where, where are we prone to water, wander? Where would we do the same very thing? And how is it that you, that you feel about sin and deal with sin? All these things, God, we want to hear from you. And so we ask, God, that you would give us uh, hearts, that you'd soften our hearts to receive 
what you have for us and ears to hear what you have to say. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray that your will would be done. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's happening here is really nothing short than the worst thing ever. Like, Like, this is equally as heartbreaking as it is infuriating that the people of God would do this. Right? This is a nightmare of catastrophic proportions. And it has been said that the story of the golden calf we just read, is widely regarded as one of the most disgraceful moments in Jewish history to this day. This is the worst. This is the low point of the story. And if you, if you forget why, I just want to remind us of the context to help kind of paint the severity of what's happening if we didn't already know. So what has happened thus far is that this people group, children of Israel, they were in slavery. They were in unbearable working conditions in Egypt for 430 years. Generational slavery. During that time, it got so bad that there was government-ordained genocide to newborn boys. I mean, it was that bad. By race, if you were an Israelite and you had a boy, that that boy would be killed to try to, you know, keep Israelites. They're getting too powerful. They're getting too innumerable. So, So this was Pharaoh, the tyrant of the time, way to control the population. They came out of one of the most horrible set of 400 years. God heard the cry of Israel, and through Moses and Aaron, through these miraculous plagues and works of the Lord, through the Passover, God parted the Red Sea and freed a nation from Pharaoh, from this evil, tyrannical leader, one of the, one the world has, the worst the world has ever seen, one of them. Miraculous, unbelievable. God has freed an entire people group for 400 years of slavery. Wow. Then it doesn't stop there. God, since then, has been providing for these people every step of the way. Right? Manna from heaven. Food that just appears on the ground for them every day. They don't even have to work for it. It just comes down and it sustains them. There's no water. God makes water. God provides over and over for his people every need that they have. Not only that, but he clearly is leading them, right? Every day there's a cloud that goes before the people, and if they have to travel at night, there's a pillar of fire, and so they're not lost. They're in the care of God. They're being provided for. They've just been freed. God is now establishing them. He's preparing them. For the promised land, right? The promised land is a promise that God is fulfilling that he promised to Abraham hundreds of years later, Abraham being the patriarch of their entire family. And so God has brought them out of bondage and now he's bringing them into an intimate covenant relationship. Yahweh is their God. He, uh, they are his people. And for the last six chapters, Moses has been on the mountaintop receiving all these instructions from God for Israel so that they may flourish, so that they might live into God's design for them and flourish as a people. This is literally nothing short of the most incredible story of all of history. This is a true historical account of a people group that God has rescued. God in every way has cared for them. This is the climax of the story. And then Exodus 32 happens after all of that. That is why it is so devastating to read Exodus 32. Because in a nutshell, it's only been a few months since they've left Egypt. And it's only been about 40 days that Moses has been on the mountaintop. And so, and what happens is, is the Jewish people, 
They get restless. They get impatient. Where's Moses? Where did he go? He's taking a little bit longer than he told us, which literally it's like one day. He said, I'll be gone for about 40 days, and he comes back about 41 days in. Right? They're impatient. They're tired of waiting, and their heart literally departs from God. They're so dissatisfied with God's timing and God's plan that the Jewish people create an idol and worship it. And then they turn to Aaron, Moses' brother, and soon to be high priest, and they demand him a God to follow. <laughs> I'm just recapping verses one through six right here. This is like, like to be honest, it's hard to not really like hate Aaron at this point. Like, after all that Aaron has been through, if you remember the story of Exodus, Moses pretty much said no to God. Burning bush, Exodus 3 and 4. Like, Moses, I want to use you to free my people. Moses said, God, I can't do that. I have a speech impediment. Like, I'm not, I'm not the guy to do this. And so God's like, okay, I'll deal with that. What about your brother Aaron? He can be your mouthpiece. Let's rope him into this. He can speak on your behalf. He can do the talking, but I still want to use you. You remember, Aaron has been in every meeting with Pharaoh. He's been firsthand with God. Like, he's been used by God to free the people of Israel. Aaron has been in the front row the whole time. It's not like Aaron's new to the story and doesn't know what's happening. He's like the OG guy in this story. This is why this betrayal is so much deeper. This is a huge betrayal in so many ways, even down to the gold that they use for this idol. If you remember the last few chapters of detail, the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, everything in the tent of meeting is gold. The gold that was supposed to be used for the building of God's house has now been melted down for this fake idol. Even down to the gold, there's betrayal. Aaron himself was supposed to lead the people of God not away. Aaron is, is the high priest, soon to be. The priesthood, the priesthood would come from the line of who? Aaron. Like, this is high up corruption as it gets. It's as bad as you're reading. It's worse, is what's happening here in the book of Exodus. This huge betrayal in so many ways. And the thing is, is that God had just saved them. Like he just had done all that we just recapped. It hasn't been long. Less than a year. About a year. A little bit over. And now just over a month after they've been sitting at the base of Mount Sinai, they sin and they turn away from God. And not only that, but they break the first and the second of the Ten Commandments that God had just gave them. Like to a T. God had just given the Ten Commandments to the people, and they literally do the opposite. Let's be reminded of this. Exodus 20, to go back. Exodus 20, this is what it says. And God spoke all these words to the children of Israel, same people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Goes on and gets worse. Exodus 20, 22 and 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, it's almost like God knew. He did. He knew it was coming. Tell the Israelites this. Let me get a little more specific. You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourself gods of silver or gods of gold. This is 12 chapters earlier, 40 days earlier. And even worse, after God had said all of this to them, the children of Israel not only heard it, but they actually agreed upon these things. They heard these things, and then in Exodus 24, this is what the children of Israel said to God after he said these things. When Moses went out and told the people all the, words, uh, all the Lord's words and laws, 
they responded with one voice, like in unison, in unity. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. We'll do that, God. We will not make any idols of gold before you. We won't do it. That's what they said. These were the agreed upon terms of the covenant. In other words, these were the marital vows of this covenant relationship with Yahweh and his people. And they did just the opposite. And the significance of the calf only makes it worse because if you remember, Israel had just come out of a very pagan environment in Egypt. And at the time, there was 114 different gods or idols that Egypt was worshiping. They were not worshiping the one true living God. They were worshiping 114 other idols, other gods, and one of them was the god of the goddess of cattle, the god Hather, the goddess of fertility. Uh, cows, bulls, calves were extremely sacred in Egypt. And if you remember, plague number three, God specifically killed the livestock in Israel to prove to, oh, excuse me, in Egypt, to prove to Egypt that he was the one true living God, that that goddess Hathor, the god of the bulls and the calves, were, was not the one true living God, but was a false god, and they were not to worship her. So now, they have now created an idol out of gold. As a calf, literally jumping back into their old life. To a T. Very detailed description of the gods they used to worship. They are now worshiping once again. The very gods that Yahweh, the one true God, freed them from, they have now ran back to, to worship. Do you see? This is a sad tale. But then what happens as our story goes on, verses 7 through 14 of our text, where God, Moses hasn't seen this yet, but God is speaking with Moses on the mountain. And God says, you, you, something's going down, down there. You need to go back down. Like Moses doesn't know what's happening. He's talking with God. And then, and then God's like, hey, you need to go back down. It's bad down there. And this is why the way in which God speaks about his own people should give us a clue of how hurtful this was to God. Do you notice in our text that God does not refer to them as his people? He says, Moses, go down and deal with your people. They're not Moses' people. They're God's people. This is the apple of his eye. This is his treasured possession. What are you talking about? He said, your people to Moses. I hope that you can step back and go, wait, wait what? What did you just... What did you say, God? What are you talking about that they're not your people? I hope you would see that sin already has created distance in the relationship. The people sin against their God. Already in a moment, there's distance that's created. Sin has come between God and his people. And again, this is echoing the story of creation where sin, humanity's sin, like our disobedience and our rebellion caused separation from God back in the Garden of Eden. And it caused separation from his love and his presence. And we've been dealing with and contending with and living with the consequences of sin in our own lives to this day. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 59 said it this way, that our iniquities, our sin, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins has hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This once again in Exodus 32 reminds us of creation. This, once again, is part of the biblical narrative of how destructive sin is. And so back to our text. God, all-knowing, he's omniscient, he, he knew this was happening from the mountaintop, and he became understandably angry. He had a righteous indignation, a righteous anger, and he literally was like, Moses, you need to leave right now. Like, I, I'm, I'm worked up. 
Like, that's what the text alludes to. Like, Moses, you need to go down and deal with your people. I'm, like, furious on what's happened. And Moses then, before, he doesn't even really have a clear picture of what's happening. God's just like, I'm so angry at the people down there. You need to go deal with your people. You need to leave me. Moses, before this, he even goes down to see what's really happening. He starts to plead intercede would be a better word, to God on behalf of Israel. Look at how Moses does it, though, in verse 11. The wordage is important. He says to God, why does your anger burn against your people? He puts it back on God. It's not my people. It's your people. These are your people, God. Remember that. Moses is doing that. These are your people, God. And, and, and this is a conversation I, I, I'm going to add to it a little bit, but this is what I think you could say. God, they deserve judgment. They deserve your wrath. And as much as like they're being the worst right now down there, have mercy and have grace on them and spare their lives and don't kill them all. That's, that's what Moses is saying. That's what Moses is saying. And what does verse 14 say? God heard and relented. And didn't bring this disaster upon who? His people. Upon his people. In the NASB, New American Standard, what it says there, in in that version, it says, So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. What the what? If If you care about theology at all, at all, you're gonna, you should ask that question. So before, this turns into the greatest theological bait of all time. Because here's the deal. How could Moses change God's mind? That's what it says. God was gonna do something. Moses changed it. So that doesn't make sense. Isn't God in control? Was God wrong? Many questions. Let's sidebar and talk about that later. Come talk to me. Let's do it. But before we go down a rabbit hole in our minds of what's happening here, simply look at what is happening in the text for the sake of today. Moses is talking to God strongly. In other words, he's praying, but at the core of it is really intercession. And this is crying out on behalf of other peoples to God on their behalf. And he's literally crying out, he's pleading with God, he's praying for, and he's interceding on behalf of Israel. This is not a selfish prayer for Moses' part. Moses isn't part of that, he's good. It's all on behalf of a people that have sinned greatly and turned their back on God and said, Moses, Moses said, God, have mercy on them. I'm pleading, don't destroy them all. Yeah, they may deserve it. That's what your justice would require, but do not do that right now. What happens? God hears the cry of Moses. Moses prays and God acts and God moves. In this case, he actually stops God from inflicting his full judgment on his people. Have you ever heard the saying, prayer changes things? Have we ever heard the saying, God, uh, prayer moves the hand of God? This is exactly where we get that from. Like this is why prayer is so important and powerful. I hope that we're seeing this. Prayer is not meant to be like a ritual that we just do when we need something or at church. Like prayer is meant to be we, 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 on behalf of, of, our, of other people and our family and our community, we plead with God for their salvation, for his grace, for mercy, for their situation. Let Moses' example be a stirring for us to engage in prayer, church. Amen? The book of Psalms does a really good job at recapping a lot of what the old, what's happening in the Old Testament at the time. And so Psalm 106 talks exactly about what's happening here in Exodus 32. So Psalm 106, 19 says this. I have it on the PowerPoint. The people made a calf at Mount Sinai. 
They bowed before an image made of gold. They traded their glorious God for a statue of a grass-eating bull. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done such strange things in Egypt, such wonderful things in the land of Ham, such awesome deeds at the Red Sea. So he declared he would destroy them. But Moses, his chosen one, stepped between the Lord and the people, and he begged him to turn from his anger and not destroy them. Like, do, do you see that? He stepped between the Lord and his people. There's this phrase that over time the church has coined. It's called standing in the gap. Right? Prayer could be, stand, I, I'm standing in the gap for that person between God and them. I'm, I'm standing in the gap on their behalf. They're referring to Exodus 32, verse 14. When Moses stood in between God and God's people and begged for mercy. That is the vision of prayer that we see in scripture and believe is a good wake-up call for us as a church of how to pray for our island and our family and our friends. Amen? Amen. Moving on. So unfortunately, this doesn't end there. Gets actually a little, maybe worse before better. Maybe just worse. I don't know. We'll see. Verses 15 through 20 of our text today, then Moses comes down and he sees for himself what's happening, right? And Moses is furious. It's probably worse than he thought. He hadn't seen it yet. He's talking with God. He's praying. He's in a good spot. Then Moses comes down the mountain. He sees for himself his own people and his brother Aaron doing this. And what does he do? It's very dramatic what he does. Like it's a big deal what he does. He throws the tablets, the, the tablets that house the Ten Commandments, that literally the finger of God had just written upon. He just had gotten it. These are the most, these are the, these are the most important things the world has ever seen so far. He's, he's so undone, he throws them and they break. Like, he, he, he tosses these. He tosses these things. The finger of God had just wrote them. He drops them to the ground. They shatter. And I may be reading it into it a little bit, but I, I have to think that remember what those, those tablets meant. Those were the terms of the covenant relationship that these people had with that God. And so what was happening in front of Moses' eyes was a betrayal. You could even go as far to call it a spiritual affair that was happening in front of his eyes. They were now worshiping another God. They were doing exactly what they said they wouldn't do. And in the breaking of these tablets, it would be like the likening of taking off a wedding ring and throwing it when betrayal or affair has happened. When, when you're angered so much at the other person in your marriage relationship that you do something so drastic like you throw off the wedding ring that symbolizes the covenant relationship that you're in. This is what is happening here when Moses drops it. He can't, he can't even believe what's happening. This is so unbelievable. This is a betrayal to God. And so Moses like questions Aaron, like verses 21 through 25. Like, Aaron, what's going on here? And Aaron like is such an idiot. He's trying to explain his actions. He's like recounting what's happening. And then he's like, yeah, like we threw the gold in the fire and a calf just came out. It's like, dude, that's not what happened. You're trying to like justify and reason your way out. Aaron, you're digging a hole, a bad one. Just stop. What done is done. It's not good. So see, this is like really bad. This is, again, the, 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 the lowest point in the life of Israel. And God actually does have mercy, even though it may feel like he doesn't have doesn't for a second. But what happens is, is that because Moses prayed, God is now not going to kill everyone. And everyone was a lot of people, two and a half million at that time about. There was a lot of people at the base of Mount Sinai's people. But because of Moses's prayer, again, I know it's, this is a whole other thing we can talk about later, but 
So 3,000 people still die. And this, again, is due to their disobedience and departure from God. This is the hard part of the story. But once again, God doesn't carry out his full judgment. Right? There is grace and mercy there because he doesn't, because of his justice, wipe out everyone. But here's the hard truth that, that, that's really important that we see here in a, in a really vivid way. Disobedience and rebellion to God, a.k.a. sin, leads to death. Like, sin is gnarly. And the, the severity of sin here is very vivid. And this isn't true of only Israel. Right? All of humanity's sin, including ours, has deadly consequences. We just see it like real up front in this story. And so it's really hard to swallow that God would do this type of thing. But what it's doing is it's pointing to the reality of sin for all of humanity. And what the book of Romans says very clearly in Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. So, so all sin, not just Israel's sin, our own sin, everyone that's ever lived, when we sin against God, when we uh, choose not to follow him, when we don't obey him, the consequences, the wages, what that accrues, what that gives us, the result of our disobedience is going to end up in death. And what happens is, I think because we don't usually think that way, we don't see sin maybe as we truly should, so many times we toy with sin, play with it. Maybe we downplay it. Maybe we minimize it. We're really good at justifying our sin, right? We're really good like Aaron to be like, no, nah, it wasn't that big a sin. I didn't really do it. It was kind of their fault. They made me do it. And the truth is, is that sin is sin. Like all disobedience to God is deadly and it's devastating and it's, it's deadly. And the harsh truth is that sin is evil. It's gnarly. It's destructive. And what Exodus 32 is a wake-up call to that. Like it really is. But what I want to do is, is obviously not end there and not leave us there because that's not the end of the story. What I want to do is, is step back and summarize really quick and, and pull a few takeaways for us. So what's happened here is that Israel has betrayed and rebelled against God. And God was understandably angry and he wanted to bring judgment. But what Moses did is he interceded and he prayed and God did have mercy and God did have justice. He did. He had justice, but he also had mercy. He had to have both because it points to the, the nature and the character of God. He's full of compassion. He's full of grace, but also he is a just God and a fair God. But what everyone deserved here, according to God's glorious standards, was death. He didn't want this for his people. He didn't want this for us. If we remember the creation narrative, God's original intent was for him to live with his people in a world free of sin. But our first ancestors, Adam and Eve, chose to rebel against God and sin entered the world and we've been dealing with the effects ever since. God doesn't want this for his people. He doesn't want to bring justice on his people. He doesn't want to, to, to bring his wrath upon his people. That is not his intent. But he needed to be just and bring justice. But also, at the same time, God is full of love and grace and mercy. And what is happening here in Exodus is pointing to the fulfillment of God's plan to redeem humanity in his son. Exodus 32 is a microcosm of the gospel. It's a foretaste of what was to come in the cross. And we know that, right? That's the good news of Jesus Christ. God made a way through his son to take the wrath of God and the judgment of God upon himself so that we wouldn't have to pay the price, but Jesus would pay the price for us. And what that did is it, it satisfied the justice of God. But what the cross also does is it 
shows us the mercy and the grace of God. See, what mercy is, is on the cross, is freeing us from what we deserve. We deserved death. But mercy is not, is not, is not is freeing us from getting death. What grace is, is giving us what we don't deserve. We don't deserve life, and that's what we got out of the cross. What we deserved was death. What we didn't deserve was life. The cross is the climax of God's justice, his love, his mercy, and grace in one time, in one place, in one action. That's why there's finality to it. That when Jesus died on the cross, it, it was finished. It was paid in full. All of our sin, the wages of our sin, the debt of our sin was put on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. And he died. He, he paid the price. God's wrath was poured out upon him on the cross. Pain for what, our sin. And in return, what does Jesus give us through the cross? Life. Through grace and through mercy. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what the book of Exodus is alluding to. This is, this is, we're seeing dimly through a glass, so to speak, in Exodus 32, what the cross would do in fulfilling God's justice, his mercy, and his grace. Are you guys with me? What also is important is that the broken condition of the people of Israel, what that should show us actually should be a flashlight or better said, a mirror to our own broken condition. Because we, like the children of Israel, are also prone to wander and do our own thing, to worship our own gods. And we, we may think, like, we would never do something like Israel would. It's too bad. It's too horrible. How could they do that? And the truth is, is that we are no different. We are no different. Even after knowing God, right? Even after God saving us as Christians, <coughs> excuse me, we are prone to wander. And I wish we weren't. I, I wish I could say that we're different. <laughs> Not Israel, you had it wrong. We're better now. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Who could know? And we here sitting in this room today, myself included, can so easily fall into this very same trap to choose the passing pleasures of this world over following our glorious God and Savior. And we, like Israel, for whatever reason, we can be tempted and tugged to exalt and worship and follow other things other than our God. And we can set up idols, like false gods in our own hearts that we choose to worship. See, see an idol doesn't have to be like a golden calf. That's what we see here in Exodus. But an idol could look like, like money. It could look like having money, uh, having success, keeping your reputation. See, it may not be like a God of gold we worship, but maybe we worship what people think of us. Maybe we worship and chase after a job. Maybe it's, it's a house, like we have to have that thing. Or we have to have a certain way of life and we chase after it. And whether we want to say it or not, we're actually worshiping that thing. We're exalting it. We're following it. We'll do whatever we can to get it. And we're willing to neglect other things, <coughs> excuse me, in order to. <coughs> An idol doesn't have to be a golden calf. An idol can be anything that we exalt to the place where God should only be. I've taught this before, but as a way of reminder, if you have not uh, read Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, just go Amazon, go to the bookstore, go get it. It's really good. It's really convicting, but in a really good way. In his book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, here's a quote. It says this, an idol is anything more important to you than God. 
Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to, uh, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. And the truth is is that anything in life can serve as an idol or, or a counterfeit God. Even the very best things in life. For Israel, it's pretty obvious, like, dude, that is a gold idol that God told you just not to worship. That's bad. But in idol, some of the most dangerous ones are the most subtle and less obvious can be the very best things in our life, actually gifts from God. If you're married, you'll know that it's, it's actually really easy to fall into the trap of making your spouse an idol. If you have kids... It's even even easier to make your kids an idol. You can make a family your idol. Again, these are good things. These are gifts from God, and they're wonderful, but they have their place under God. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is that are we exalting things in our lives, to a place in our hearts that God should only have that place? So I believe that the right question would be to ask this morning is, what are our golden calves? What are the gods of gold that we may have in our own life that we are exalting and worshiping when God should only be in that place? Right, we may be here today and we may be really hurting and we may be broken because you're hearing this and you're like, man, I've been living far from living for God. Or maybe even like you're like Israel where you maybe even feel like there was one one time where you were like all in following Jesus and then you're like barely at church today. And you feel, you're sitting there, you're like, man, I feel like I've betrayed the Lord. Because like for Israel, you have to imagine, like once they came out of this, like the shame, or maybe the condemnation, or maybe the hurt, or maybe like the devastation once some of them came to their senses. And here's the deal. God doesn't, I'm not saying this. God isn't saying it. God's heart is not for condemnation or shame or rejection His loving kindness is why he convicts us. Why he illuminates sin or idolatry in our life is so that we could realize the error of our ways, surrender, present those things, demolish those things before the feet of Jesus and come back into union with God once again. Because whatever idols we have in our life, whatever sin we're we're still uh, practicing and into, it's causing separation. It's causing distance between us and the Father, right? Sin is messing with our relationship with our Father. And so the only reason why you're sitting here, and if this is like hitting a chord, is because God's like, I love you, and that's getting in the way of this. I want you. That's messing with you. That's not how I designed you. that's, That's messing you up. And for some of us in here, you may be really hurt and broken and feeling all those feelings. What I would want to tell you today is that we are all broken and we're all in need of a savior, right? We need Jesus to rectify us and save us, to redeem us into the people that he's intended us to be. And so as we enter into time of worship, my exhortation would be, come unto Jesus, like for him to wash your sins away. Right, come as you are, not as you want to be. That's the biggest lie. That's the don't. God's the one that's going to clean you up. A lot of times we got to think, well, I got to get my own life in order. I got to deal with some things before I come to Jesus. No, that's the whole point. Come as you are. All your mess, amen. All your mess, all your junk, bloodied and beaten and like broken. That's why the Father sent His Son. To come and scrape us up out of the muck and the mire and to hug us and and, and accept us and love us and free us and give us life and joy once again. 
It's the purpose of the cross. And so church, let's surrender and lay the, our idols, our, our gods of gold, so to speak, at the feet of Jesus, and let's put Christ back on the throne once again where he deserves to be. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you that our sin doesn't define us, that that doesn't tell our story, that our mistakes, even betrayal, like even like turning our back on you isn't the end of the story, but actually... It's where the good news, it's what makes the cross good news is that when we present all that stuff, all our rebellion and our disobedience and our betrayal and our, and our sin and the ways in which we've hurt others or whatever it is, that you want us to come and lay those things at your feet and you say that as we confess those things, that you are quick to forgive us and forget about these things. That you, that you wash us as white as snow and you forgive our sin as far as from the east as from the west. That Jesus, that you paid for the wrath of God and the justice of God. And you gave us the grace and mercy to be spared from death and given us new life. There's much to worship over. There's much to be thankful over because of those things. And God, as we spend a few more minutes, a few more songs declaring your goodness and your attributes, we pray that uh, these interactions would happen, that we would get out of our seats and maybe come to the carpets and, and kneel before you and surrender, or, or we would be in the quietness of our own heart, we would ask for forgiveness and or maybe it's turning to someone to, to our right or to our left or going back to the prayer team and just confessing our, our, our wandering, our, 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 our waywardness from the Lord. But God, I pray that you would orchestrate all of that and all of this would be good and right and there would be healing and restoration that would happen between us and you this morning. God, just remove the things that we've put in place of you in our life. Remove those idols in our hearts that should not be there by the power of your spirit. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.